You're listening to a Fit Plus Love production. Giro is definitely all about sustainability at its core. You know, companies are the people that are part of it. And within Giro, there are a lot of people who care about sustainability. And a lot of, you know, everybody cares about cycling. And <laughs> so, you know, you get the cycling and sustainability and you know, innovation all together and it works out really well. And it's awesome to be one of the first brands to really have a strong program around shifting our apparel to be sustainable. It's one of the categories where you can make a significant change fairly quickly. And it's great to see now that it's started, other brands are also putting attention there and coming into their own and finding their own programs because it's once you you know, set a goal around it, then you're able to learn year over year and how to improve. That was Margot Elliott. This is Marnie Salop. Thanks for tuning into my podcast, Marnie on the Move. Each week, I will be inviting interesting, innovative movers and shakers to join me on the show and share their story. You will discover and hear from thought leaders, experts, influencers, and entrepreneurs from the worlds of wellness, sports, beauty, fitness, fashion, and more. Marnie on the Move will feature an eclectic mix of people I know, work with, and think are generally doing cool things. On each episode, I sync up with my guests about life, career, and training, and showcase their expertise and story. Hello, welcome, and welcome back to the Marnie on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Marnie Salop. When today's guest decided to conjure up and embark upon a fun cycling challenge, she set the bar pretty high, one million feet high to be exact. Today on the podcast, I sync up with Margot Elliott, the first woman to ever vertically ascend one million feet of terrain on a mountain bike over a one-year period. Inside Tracker is the ultra-personalized nutrition platform that analyzes your blood, DNA, and lifestyle to help you optimize your body from the inside out. They are my go-to for understanding my inner health, looking at my blood levels, and getting great nutritional insight. Inside Tracker transforms your body's data into meaningful insights and a customized action plan of the science-backed recommendations you need to reach your goals. Take control of your health and wellness. Unlock the power of your potential. And use our code CHEERSMARNIE for 25% off. She also has a pretty cool job at world-renowned cycling brand, Giro, as the apparel product manager where she has developed sustainable apparel with the launch of the Giro Renew Collection and beyond. On this episode, Margot and I sync up about Giro's sustainability strategy, how the brand is leading the way for cycling apparel companies around the globe, using fabrics made from recycled materials, setting the tone for a long-term goal to bring sustainability to all of Giro's apparel. Margot shares how working at Giro was her dream job her strategy to landing it, and how she became one of the leading figures in promoting environmentalism in cycling. And we talk about her goals for Giro in the near future. When she's not busy working on cycling apparel, she's out on her bike. And in 2019, she set out and complete an epic challenge, climbing 1 million feet in under 52 weeks with 25 hours of weekly riding. We do a deep dive into the genesis of this concept, where her journey into cycling began, 
the strategy and planning that went into the challenge, her favorite gear, and we discuss opportunities and obstacles along the way. Hint, it involves lots of brake pads, grip tape, Snickers, and a few mountain lions. I hope you enjoy our conversation. If you like what you hear, leave us a review on Apple. It's easy. Head over to your app, scroll through the Marnie on the Move podcast episodes, click on five stars, click on leave a review. Now, on to my conversation with Margot. Thank you so much, Margot, for being on the podcast today. I'm so excited. (laughs) I'm so thrilled to be here. So thanks for having me. So let's dive in. Jiro was founded over 30 years ago. This company has been making apparel, shoes, helmets, you name it, and is legendary in the world of cycling and triathlon. What was the initial sort of inspiration behind Jiro and where did the ideation for this brand begin? The person behind Jiro was Jim Gentis, and he is an innovator. He's obsessed with design. He's obsessed with performance and improving performance. And so he was really the the catalyst. He founded Jiro, and from that, um, really drove innovation in cycling, obviously starting with helmets. That's what we're most known for. But that strength and power that he had as far as innovation and and forward thinking and what he wanted to do um, still drives the company today. You know, he's no longer with the company, but you can see it in everything that we do. You know, footwear is innovating all the time. They came out with the Empire lace shoes and we have, you know, the spherical mitts that's come out in helmets. And then also just new ways of thinking about things. Apparel, when it first launched, was called New Road. And it was more about this, like, this was back in 2013, but more of this gravel look that no one was talking about gravel yet, you know? It's cool to see that the ideas that it was founded on still proliferate throughout the company today. And now it's completely evolved, right, into even what we're going to talk about, which is sustainable fashion and design. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. I'd say Giro is definitely all about sustainability at its core you know companies are the people that are part of it and within Jiro there are a lot of people who care about sustainability and a lot of you know everybody cares about cycling and (laughs) so you know you get the cycling and sustainability and you know innovation all together and it works out really well. And so you're the apparel product manager at Jiro so tell me a little bit about your role and what led you to Jiro back in 2014 when you joined the company? Well, I think I just have the best job ever. Yeah. I love what I do. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> um, and I think I get to do it at just the best companies. My job is I'm product manager, but I'm also a product developer. So I get to decide kind of the direction of the line and where it goes, what pieces we add to the line and also get to source materials and dial in the fit for each product. So I get to do a lot of different things and it's all a collaboration with our athletes or with the internal team. Jiro is a place that really, you know, encourages people to share ideas and feed off each other's energy. And so we all benefit from that. So that's a huge positive. But what led me to Jiro was I was living in Boulder at the time, actually, back in 2014. 
And I had lived in Santa Cruz prior and really wanted to find a way to get back to the Santa Cruz area at some point. I was working at another cycling company and I knew that going back to Santa Cruz, the only place I would want to work is Giro. <laughs> so I used LinkedIn to yeah. find somebody who had a similar job to me at Giro and just randomly cold call was like, hey, um, next time we're at a trade show, maybe we can get coffee so I can get to know you. And that's so I'd smart. Love to move back. Yeah, I, I don't. Good job. Past Margo. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah, I was really looking long-term. I was like two to three years from now, I'd love to be back in the area. Well, later that week, there was a job opening. And so I sent my resume in. Within a month, I had gone through the interview process and was packing my apartment to move back to Santa Cruz. So it was super serendipitous. And I'm so grateful that it worked out that way. And so you have a fashion background, right? You went to FIT? I did. Yes. So talk to me a little bit about that because it seems like you've now officially merged your like love of fashion and development in with your other passion, right? Cycling. Absolutely. Yeah. I became really interested in fashion in high school um, and not so much with fashion necessarily, but I got really interested about how what someone wears can affect first impressions and how people are perceived differently depending on what they're wearing and more importantly to me is how someone can feel and what they're wearing you know like there are times when you can put something on and you feel like a superhero yes totally I have something about that just gives you the power you know you walk out of the house for a race or something and you got that extra yeah totally (laughs) Yeah, so that was something that was super interesting to me. And um, and so in high school, I decided to pursue that and ended up going to the Fashion Institute in New York City. And at the time, I, I was thinking I'll be a buyer for some high-end fashion thing. I'll yeah. live in New York the rest of my life, you know. Uh, meanwhile, I'm a pretty casual girl from Southern California. <laughs> <laughs> well, I also like just to say, I went to Parsons for yeah, yeah. design. Uh, that's great. Not, yeah. I ended up in marketing, but yeah, that's it. Right. Yes. New York City fashion. FIT is an awesome school though. It's awesome. And so is Parsons, you know, especially for design and FIT was perfect because it's like for fashion merchandising, yes. which for people listening who don't know, that's basically like the business side of fashion. You yeah. Know? So it was perfect for that. Yeah. A friend of mine is a like fashion forecaster, marketer, and she teaches at at FIT now. Nice. Yeah, Yeah, that's so awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's a great school. I love that going to school there. I got to dive right into something I was interested in. You know, it's a trade school, so you don't waste a lot of time doing things you're not quite sure about. It helps that I was pretty sure about what I wanted to do. (laughs) So, But I loved that about that school. And you're just fully immersed in it right away. And I loved that. But yeah, it didn't take very long for me to realize like, oh, wow, this is very intense. New York City. <laughs> high fashion yeah, yeah. and New York City. And I loved New York City, but the high fashion aspect of it, I was like, maybe I don't quite fit into that side of it. But it's um, funny how you find your way, find your niche in career and life and all those things, right? Like how it all works out. Yeah, absolutely. So I was kind of feeling that energy and was home for winter break and went on a snowboarding trip with my dad. And we were sitting on the lift and I was wearing these snowboarding pants that I was obsessed with. They were just cool. It's, you know, like we were talking about before you put something on and you're a superhero. 
I love the fashion, so you don't need to convince me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, so I would snowboard just to me. wear the pants, and I have absolutely yeah. no skills. <laughs> yeah. So they were red plaid. Okay. <laughs> um, so I, anyways, we were on the lift, and I looked down at them, and I was like, oh, this is clothes. I can do this for my work. I can keep going to school and studying fashion and apply it to this. And I was really into snowboarding at the time, and so it was like a light bulb went off. So at that point I just fully committed to technical and performance apparel is kind of what I realized that niche was that I wanted to do and fully went after snow sports. And so I started my career out in the snow sports industry, developing performance outerwear, which was awesome. I loved that. It was perfect for the time. And um, yeah, I'm super grateful that I got to do that. So how did you get into the world of sustainability and flash forward to like where we are now and what you're doing at Giro? I know that this has been, you know, sustainability in fashion is a huge topic and it's been an ongoing movement and trend for over the past decade and it's really gaining momentum in fast fashion but it's great to see that there's a cycling brand that's really trying to get into the movement make an imprint and really go in that direction so maybe give me an overview of like how you got into it and then what you're doing at Giro. Yeah. So first of all, I'll say that Jiro was probably the perfect place for me to be because Jiro and the people who are there already inherently care about the environment um, where we live. You know, it's kind of like a hippie surfing town and there's just that, I guess, progressive thinking, I think you could say. And Jiro yeah. was already doing sustainability initiatives before I got there. Like we've had recycled paper packaging for I don't even know how long. Um, and they worked on a biodegradable helmet that launched, I think, the year after I was there. So Jiro is a perfect place to be to care about something like that. Right. Uh, and then around, I think it was in the winter of 2015, I saw a documentary called Racing Extinction. And I, you know, it's the documentary where you just kind of feel like the world is, is going downhill and it's a little overwhelming about how bad things are. And, and it's almost too much to grasp, you know, and as one person, I think it's easy to feel at a loss for what to do. And I think they wrapped up that documentary really well. And at the end, it said something like, pick one thing, do one thing, you know, start there and see where it goes. And in the week that followed watching that documentary, and I was in tears, I was like crying at the end of it. I was like, what are we going to do? Yeah. And every once in a while, it still happens, you know? I think it can be overwhelming for people though, because you think like the world is so big and you're like, I'm one person. So how can I make a difference? And I think I had that lesson in the past like few years about really making a difference, you know, just by how you shop or, you know, all these small things, but it's really hard to grasp that concept. But once you do, it's amazing because you can make a difference. Absolutely. Yeah. And so in the week that followed watching that, I was kind of like, well, I don't know how to compost or like, I'll try, but I don't know what I'm doing, you know, and had exactly what you're talking about, where just feeling overwhelmed with that. I couldn't do enough, even though you can, every little thing you do makes a difference, especially if they, you share that with people in your life. But then, you know, not long after I was at work 
and I was getting ready to source materials for our spring 2019 collection. And I'm just looking at rows of materials and I, just the light bulb went off. And I was like, this is my thing. This is the thing I can do. Let's find, I know there's recycled materials. Let's make this an initiative. Let's change how we're doing apparel here. This hasn't been something that we've prioritized, but it's something we all care about. Let's make the change. And so, and so we did. And like I said, Jira is the perfect place to be because I received nothing but support when I decided to do that for the apparel line. Um, and since implementing it, you know, we are trying to evolve that outside of just the apparel category and bring right. more products under that renew collection umbrella. But, you know, I think it just goes to show first of all, the impact that stories can have, sharing stories, like right. seeing a documentary, it's hard, like your podcast, you know, yeah. this can go on to inspire someone else. And that's really powerful. So first of all, that's important is sharing stories. Right. So props to you. <laughs> and you. then the second point is that we all can make a difference. And I'm lucky to be in a position where I work on a product category that's sold all over the world. So my choices and the materials that I source can make a large impact. And so I feel really lucky to be able to implement it in that way, but everyone has something that they can do, you yeah. know, so. Talk to me a little bit about that. the materials and fabrics past and present, like that you're using and why. Yeah. So, well, first of all, I would say materials have come a long way, you know, 10 years ago or more when I started out, in the industry, there were not a lot of good options. <laughs> so, you know, that's the first problem. That's the foundation of your garment. So if there isn't a good material and you're a, kind of a small fish in a big pond, yeah. they're probably not going to change how they do business for you. Right. So now, but that's totally different now. There's amazing, like you can pretty much get any polyester, nylon's a little harder, but a lot of materials are available and recycled options now. Cool. And so timing is definitely a part of it, you know, and I give a lot of props to companies like Patagonia who really pushed fabric suppliers to change how they were doing business and, um, and consumers for becoming more aware and pushing businesses to do better. So um, my priority is on using recycled materials because recycled materials not only solve a litter problem, you know, right. giving it an end use to something that is otherwise totally waste, but also when you use a recycled bottle, for instance, to create yeah. new polyester, it can use like, it can have like 70% less impact than a virgin source material. That number's debatable. There's different numbers, but by and large, everyone agrees it's a significantly less impact just because you're not needing to recreate that source, that material from scratch. Yeah. So no, go ahead. I, I was going to ask about the manufacturing process and also like maintaining the high tech aerodynamic component of a kit or the fabric. Yeah. I think, um, I think what's great is that we work with fantastic suppliers. I think yeah. that's really important. Um, working with suppliers who are putting money, investment, care behind doing the right thing. 
um, behind learning this. Cause I think it's important to remember that I'm not a material science scientist. Right. I'm not a climate scientist. I'm yeah. no, you know, I didn't, but it's my job as someone who can enact change in a product line to learn as much as I can from those people to implement the right things in the product line. So I think, um, yeah, working with people and companies like that is super important. And I think consumers, us as a company, will yeah. never accept a product that is not as good, yeah. even if it's recycled. Yes. Um, consumers also won't stand for paying more for a recycled product, okay. which was interesting. I mean, some will. Some people are responsible and they're like, yeah, if it's better for the environment, I'll pay for it. But right. by and large, most consumers they want to pay the same price. So we really focused on that is, okay, we have to, you know, take the hit up front to offer this product at the same price, even though it's recycled and it's right. costing us more. Right. So we can get people on board with this. <laughs> well, I feel like once you do like more volume, so how many collections exactly. do you have that are using recycled materials and sustainability as a strategy around the, is it just the renew collection or is it everything? It's just like, the renew yeah. collection. Yeah. Okay. So the renew collection is any product that uses recycled materials for at least 50% of the materials okay. used. That's kind of our threshold. So we have other styles in the line that are using recycled materials, but it's not 50%. So we won't put it in that because okay. I think it's important to have a threshold, you know, so yeah. we're not just greenwashing. Right. Yes. Which I think is a really important point to bring up because the industry, there's a lot of great collections coming out that uh, present opportunities for using sustainable materials or improving how we do business. But I think there's definitely the opportunity for greenwashing. Yes. And I think it's important to not only see a single product in a brand's lineup that is sustainable, but they should have a plan for a much larger sustainability or eco-conscious movement. Right. It should be part of the DNA of the brand. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, part of the DNA and widespread, you know, <laughs> capsule collections are great because they're a chance to push the boundaries, you know, like I definitely am trying to work on a capsule collection that will allow us to try things out. And if they work, then, you know, move them out. Right. So it, consumers can really help as well because they can vote for the brand and the collections with the money they spend and how they shop. Absolutely. That's something people can do and definitely should do. And I think, you know, voting with your dollar is a yeah, real thing. It's huge. It makes a huge difference. If you feel like as a consumer, you don't make a difference with what you buy, you, that's totally wrong. You have so much power with the power of your dollars and to choose something that's more sustainable is a, is a great thing. How are cycling brands navigating in a world of sustainability and how is Giro spearheading that initiative? Yeah, so cycling... I would say it's definitely been pretty slow to come into the sustainability game. I think cycling is pretty traditional. You know, it's maybe a little bit slower moving than say outdoor is. Outdoor has fully taken on sustainability and, you know, spearheading the movement there. Cycling is definitely slower and it's awesome to be one of the first brands to really have a strong program around shifting our apparel to be sustainable. It's one of the categories where you can make a significant change fairly quickly. 
And it's great to see now that it's started, other brands are also putting attention there and coming into their own and finding their own programs because it's once you, you know, set a goal around it, then you're able to learn year over year yeah. and how to improve, you know, cause things we know now, things we, we learned a month ago are different than things we learned a year ago. And every year we're evolving and learning more about what we can do and what's right and what's wrong and, um, and applying it to the line. So I think it's really important to set a, set a goal or have an idea of what you want to do so that, you can start progress because it's not going to happen overnight. Right. And I think when one brand starts, then it makes it, the vision is there for other brands, even though, yeah. you know, and, and so the more that everybody can demonstrate that it's possible, the fabrics, the manufacturing the technology is out there, then it's like, oh, we can do that. And then, you know, consumers can start to shop with their favorite brands for sustainable yeah. apparel kits. Exactly. Then it puts the power of the dollar into the consumer's hand, you know, and kind of puts the pressure on other brands that don't have sustainable apparel and to develop that because, you know, if there is a better option, why not take it? Yeah. So with your Renew collection, it's 50% recycled materials. At least. At least. Some of it's 100%. Tell me a little bit about more about the Renew collection and how you're planning to grow it as the years go on. Yeah, definitely. There are so many things when you look at sustainability, it's not just one aspect of the garment, you know, there's different phases. There's the production phase with the materials and actually creating the garment. There's uh, the use phase where it's in the consumer hands. So things that apply there are washing and drying and, you know, how long the garment is used. And then there's end, end of life. So how does it get disposed? Can it be recycled? All of those things. So you can't really talk about sustainability without at least considering all of those right. phases. Um, production phase is by far the largest impact, you know, it's significant and there are so many different factors that go into that. And, um, part of that is the raw materials. There's a lot of water use, used right. with materials. If you dye materials, it uses significantly more water. That water can then go on to pollute if it's not treated properly. Um, a lot of people see natural fibers as being very sustainable, which isn't necessarily the case because right. of <clears throat> widespread land use and the uh, water use and then the eutrophication of those fields and how does that get controlled? So there's a lot to consider. And, and like I said, we're learning every day, but um, I think as far as the production process goes, continuing to source recycled materials, also looking at how does that evolve from there? How can we create a product that at the end of its life could potentially be recycled right. or better understanding what is the best way to then go on and dispose of a garment. What right. is the cleanest possibility out there? So um, another factor is encouraging consumers to use their products to their end of life. Right. That's such a huge component. Do you actually need a bib short? That's a gray area sometimes. Like we were talking about before, sometimes you need a superhero suit for yeah. a race weekend, you know, but it's okay. So if then you do need one, then pick one that's made out of recycled materials because it's so much better as far as impact goes. 
And then transportation is another huge factor, you know, like where is the material coming from? Where is the garment being manufactured and where is it distributed? We're a globally distributed brand. So considering all those factors and where it ends up is important, which all of this essentially comes into a life cycle analysis, (laughs) which is the gold standard as far as sustainability goes. If you can do like a 360 degree analysis of a product's life cycle to better understand the emissions, that's where you can really see where you can improve. And that is absolutely something we're, you know, working towards it's very complex and yeah. very expensive to <laughs> figure out all those details. Um, so, you know, the, f- the first part is getting the product at least into a space where we can understand it better and then learning from it and moving on. It's a long-term yeah. process and it might not all come together immediately in 10 years from now. We'll probably, it'll probably be just like normal. I think part of it, right, is brands, just the whole cycle of production and manufacturing and design all and shipping and then all of that, you know, as somebody who went to Parsons, <laughs> you yeah. know, like uh, the four P's. It's like it, it, <laughs> it affects the overall bottom line for the brand to be able it to really sell does. the product. You know, consumers, if you have the buy-in, there's proof of concept. And I think you know, everybody is working together. At least a lot of brands are working to figure this out together. So hopefully it will happen sooner than later. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think even now I see it as as such an automatic. There's no reason that a product shouldn't be made from recycled polyester. It's out there. It's good. It's accessible. It is more expensive, but it's not that much more expensive. Right. And so I think you know, it should be standard. And I think with all the updated climate reports coming out, there should be urgency on the parts of brands. You know, the climate is getting worse faster than we expected it to. And uh, without drastic change, things aren't going to get better. And so we have to look for ways. And, and this is just, I mean, uh, this is just scratching the surface, right? Yeah. We have to change big ways, but at least this is a place for us to start. Well, it makes me feel good to know that there's a brand that I could buy that's doing this, yeah. right? That Yeah, and a great brand. That, as a consumer, it's like, oh, I can wear Jiro, and then i part of the mission for sustainability. Absolutely. And putting this out there to the universe for people to understand that they can do something too. I think people should totally feel empowered when they purchase a product like this that they can be proud of. And like you said, they're absolutely a part of that mission, you know, absolutely contributing to, to brands doing things a better way. And they're choosing to buy a more environmentally responsible garment and they didn't have to. And that's huge. So, Yeah. Shifting gears here. Yeah. How did you get into cycling? Because I think before we talk about your amazing, let's see, would you call it a a challenge that you set for yourself? It has to do with cycling. Challenge, goal, accomplishment, crazy idea. (laughs) So, you know, like most kids, I definitely grew up with a bike, you know, and my dad had a mountain bike as I was growing up and he did some pretty cool cycling challenges, endurance races or rides, or he wasn't competitive, but it did some rides, which was cool. But when I was a kid, I didn't really get into cycling. It wasn't really a sport that I was involved in. And after college, I was really looking for something to get fit again. I had been athletic in high school and then 
tried to go to the gym and wasn't really having fun doing that. I I know. I don't like the gym either. It's kind of like. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was really. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Looking for something to help me get fit again. You know, I've always been athletic and was kind of missing that part of myself at the time. And so there was a sprint triathlon up at a lake that I used to always go to. And I was like, all right, well, I'll do that. And turns out there's a great triathlon club in Santa Cruz. And so I signed up for that. They had a whole program for beginners and I got into cycling into more of the roadside through that and and loved it, loved being outside. I was like, man, this is better than the gym. This is awesome. And people are so nice and I can be outside and it was great. And shortly after that, kind of through that series of events, I ended up meeting uh, my now fiance, who was a professional downhill racer Mm -hmm. and was kind of doing more enduro races. And so I got into mountain biking through him really. Yeah. And I always really loved descending, uh, love descending, like, you know, crashing even I'm totally fine with. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know how I feel about crashing, but I do like going downhill fast. That's my specialty. I prefer not to crash, but if I do, sometimes I, you know, get that because you crash into some bushes and a tree or rocks or a river. But climbing was always hard. I've always been bad at climbing. Just you know, the physical aspect of it was always really hard. Um, But, you know, at one point, Evan, my fiance, he was going to sign up to do the Enduro World Series and was telling me about the first race in Chile. And I was like, me being super naive and thinking I was getting really good at mountain biking was like, well, maybe I'll go do that with you. (laughs) He was very um, understanding and polite. And he was like, well, let's you know, maybe you should try an enduro race first, just one, you know, nearby here before you go racing internationally at the highest elite level there is. (laughs) So I signed up for an enduro race. Uh, This was probably back in 2014, 2015. Signed up as a beginner, did not finish the race. (laughs) But so it was a humbling experience physically but did walk away from it just loving how much it pushed my skills racing is so awesome because it will push you far above and beyond what you think you can do yeah I remember an obstacle in practice just freaking out about it and stressing about how I would get through it in the race and don't even remember it on the race day you know just didn't even see it so then I yeah I got more into racing did the enduro series in California ended up racing internationally at the Trans New Zealand and got second place there wow, and that's pretty cool yeah thanks yeah I loved that that was by far the coolest race I've ever done I would love to do more oh trans my god that's races. so cool yeah it was a six-day race kind of all over the South Island of New Zealand and yeah what a blast that sounds awesome <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Just kept racing and loving it and riding my bike. And yeah, now can't even look back. Can't even remember a time without bikes. Where were you in your training and racing in 2019 when we all went into this pandemic? So in 2019, I had a really terrible race at North Star. It's a pretty brutal place to go into an enduro race. It's really rugged and was just this was in August, was really down on my riding and my confidence and just left that race totally dejected and not sure how to continue with 
mountain biking because I felt just so lost, I guess. And it was on the drive home from that race that the idea of climbing a million feet came up. And kind of as soon as it came up, I was like, oh, that sounds cool. I want to do that. (laughs) I don't know anything about it. I don't know what it's going to take to do it, but that seems like a cool thing for me to do by myself, not race related. And so this was before the pandemic. This was before the pandemic. Yeah, this was yeah, late August, early September. And by, you know, October, I was fully committed, like spreadsheets built out. So yeah, how'd you do it? How'd you plan it? Like what went into? So by the way, guys, if I didn't already say this, Margot climbed a million feet on her mountain bike, a million feet of elevation over a one year period. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Yeah. So just that's what we're that's what I'm currently obsessing on is the strategy behind this epic challenge that she set out to conquer. First woman to do it fully on a mountain bike. That is just so awesome. (laughs) Thank you. Take me back. What how did you do it? How did you map out the strategy? There was a lot to think about ahead of time. Like, you know, what rules am I going to follow? Is it all going to be on one bike? You know, can I like do intervals on the road? Basically, I wanted to make it as hard as my on myself as I could. And I was like, I want to do it on the bike I ride, the way I normally ride, or else to me, it felt like I'd be cheating. So I yeah. rode my Juliana Maverick, which is a 140 mil travel bike with wide tires, <laughs> flat pedals. Okay. Like no um, clip-in? No clip-in. I'm a flat pedal mountain biker, so I did it all on flat pedals. (laughs) And so definitely no intervals on the road. That was not allowed. I was very like strict about the the method. So then it was just about building out a plan. So I had this huge spreadsheet with a list of all the days in 2020, yeah, 2020, and just planned out, okay, how much elevation do I have to do a day? What makes sense for rest days? So essentially what it turned out being was riding three days during the week of 3,000 feet, Mm -hmm. and then both weekend days, 6,000 feet per day, and then two rest days per week. So ideally, Monday and Friday were rest days. I had the three days, Tuesday through Thursday, and Saturday and Sunday were big days. Okay, and so how long would it would you would you give yourself to climb six thousand feet? Like, what was your? Uh, for me, because I'm slow, <laughs> because it was all on a mountain. I mean, bike. it would take me ten hours. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it it was definitely like seven, yeah, eight hour rides. You know, there were a few where it was closer to six. I got really fast in July, and then <laughs> that totally went away. Uh. But yeah, so it was riding like 20 to 25 hours a week. Okay. About, yeah. Did yeah. you, so you so coached it, yourself too, right? Like you basically put together, did you use like any platform for your plan, like a training platform or? I used a little bit stages towards the end okay. when I was, wanted, I felt like I had uh, like built up my endurance, obviously, and wanted to get more out of my riding. I was feeling a little bit board's not the right word because I was never bored while I was riding my bike but just wanted to add another element to it I guess yeah so I used stages a little bit but prior to that no I was just using an excel spreadsheet because you know it was basically like go slow don't fatigue you have a lot your heart rate goes up high when you're climbing right so how do you I mean I'm pretty good at pacing myself I guess you could 
say part of wanting to do this was not wanting to train the way I had for races in the past okay. and not wanting to spend an entire ride looking at a bike computer. Right. You know, I was kind yeah. of feeling burnt out on that. I just wanted to go and be out in nature. You know, I didn't even listen to music until like May. <laughs> Then May came around and I was like, okay, I need some entertainment. <laughs> Overall, so it took you a year, right? Pretty much? Yeah. yeah. I started on January 1st and I finished on December 20th. And how, where did you do it? So because this was all planned prior to the pandemic, yeah. I have just this whole idea of traveling and going all these places and riding all these new trails so that I could experience this in a bunch of different places and then obviously that didn't happen and so 90% of my riding happened right outside my front door I'm able to get to a fire road in five minutes from leaving my house and I am very familiar with that fire road and all of the single track off of it and but for me I'm that kind of person who could listen to the same song over and over and over again and still love it and I absolutely adore the riding here and so For me, it was no problem. I think other people would lose their mind. (laughs) What were some of your biggest challenges? There were a few things that would come up. I mean, one of the hard things is just timing with work, especially, you know, especially in the early months. It was before the pandemic and I was still going into the office. And so for my weekday rides, I was up at 4.45 and riding my bike by 5.15 so that I could get a long enough ride. And it was dark. I was climbing for an hour, hour and a half in complete darkness. Granted, and there's mountain lions out there somewhere. I'm like, there's animals, but I was holding back. (laughs) Yeah, there's definitely mountain lions out there. There were definitely a lot of skunks I came to know. (laughs) I started calling all the skunks buddy. That's, I think, when Do I Do you have any, like, body. safety devices with you that you could, like, zap an animal? I mean, Every time I went out there, But I love I animals. Like, Don't, I would never want to zap them, but only if they were chasing yeah. me. <laughs> Every time I went out there, I was like, I need to bring pepper spray just for mountain lions, you know? Yeah. I was like, I need to pick some up. And I was like, it's got to be retractable so I can get to it. I never got it and yeah. stopped riding that early in the morning later anyways. but uh, But more serious challenges that came up. I was really, really fatigued in February. Mm-hmm. I think it was the culminate. I mean, this was huge amounts more riding than I had ever done before. Right. And so by February, I think there was just a lot of that building up and got yeah. really fatigued. I was, I was like having blurry vision. I was getting kind of dizzy and just kind of on your no rise or in general on my rides. Okay. Yeah. I would just leave and have no power and just kind of not be sure how I was going to finish. <laughs> But luckily that was solved with like an extra rest day, a bubble bath and, you know, eating whatever. (laughs) Yeah. I think, I I don't know, from my own training experience, I think sometimes you kind of have to go off the grid with the training plan and like, just let, listen to your body because, you know, even if you have like six workouts in the week and you're feeling like your workouts are just like, when you start to feel bored too, that's a sign of overtraining also. It's not mm-hmm. that you're bored. It's just like your body is done and it's like, hi, we're at a wall. I've been, I've been there a few times like over the summer. Yeah, absolutely. And I had never gotten to that point before. Never been overtrained. Yeah. You know, didn't even really think that was possible. And I think a lot of people don't realize. Yeah, you don't realize it yeah. and you think it's something else. So that was one of your big challenges, getting to that point where you were like overtraining and not used to the intensity and level of training. Yeah, absolutely. So luckily that passed pretty quickly. Some other things that happened, I got a 
really bad saddle sore in June. Oh my God. (laughs) Like size of like a golf ball, I would say right on my sit bone. I had never, I've never had problems with saddle sores. I hadn't and never an issue. And it was, I think caused by a swim that I took partway before I was done riding in a creek that like wasn't running super fast. It was worth it at the time because it was a really hot day and that swim in the creek felt amazing. But then, yeah, it was later that week that I developed this saddle sore. (laughs) Did that sideline you for a couple days or did you find a way to work around it? I had to completely take a week off. And even when I came back, I was doing uh, like, 80% 80% of the rides out of the saddle because it was still so painful yeah. and because it would just automatically get worse. So that was, that was, that was a pretty big challenge. That looking was, back. I've had one once before and it is so painful. I, yeah, it sucks. And did you have at any point wear and tear on like your clothes or your, that was actually one of the, the best things was I got <laughs> to wear best product a ton, you know, get way more time in products than I ha- had previously. So like these new shorts that are coming out in spring 22 are like hugely associated with this challenge. And they're like my new favorite shorts and, you know, nicer for hotter days because I didn't like how long the inseam length was and things like that. And so that was awesome. Durability wise, didn't have any issues. I uh, used like the same four chamois shorts the entire year and they were great. And oh, the manifest helmet came out while this year was happening, which is like our super ventilated trail helmet. And it was a game changer. (laughs) I was like so much better than what I had been using prior. So it was cool to, to have so much time on the bike and get to try out different products and stuff. But there were other challenges. We had really bad fires in Santa Cruz in 2020 where the air quality was terrible. Obviously nothing compared to what people losing their homes were going through, but just related to this challenge. I remember. Yeah create a problem. So I left town to ride somewhere else. And, you know, within two weeks, that place was on fire. And, you know, so that, that was really, yeah, that was really hard. I also got into a really bad car accident. I was driving home from Downeyville and ended up flipping my car on the driver's side on the freeway. Oh no. And my bike was on the back. <laughs> and I'm sure you're like, is my bike okay? Like as you're yeah, upside down in a yeah, car. Yeah, that was a weird thing to go through because like while the accident was happening kind of thought about riding (laughs) you know like this was in August and so I was starting to feel close it's not it's not but But it is where your mind goes as an athlete yeah yeah I was like nothing can stop me from this Anyways, miraculously, I was fine. I just had a cut on my finger, basically. My bike, I had to replace a wheel, the handlebars, and the swing arm. And about a week after the accident, I started feeling a pain in my belly button. And it got progressively worse. I got really concerned about it. Ended up going to the urgent care and a specialist. And it ended up being an umbilical hernia. Oh, my gosh. And that's a pretty bad thing to have happen. Yes. If you have to get surgery. It's basically six weeks of absolutely nothing, like nothing. Yes. Yeah. So, um, that was probably the point where I was least confident that I was going to be able to finish because of how painful it was getting. And so progressively, and, but then all of a sudden it just started to fade away. So I think it was aggravated from the car accident 
Um, the doctor said most people, if you look hard enough, probably have an umbilical hernia. So I was like, all right, well, it's gone away. So I'll be fine. <laughs> That's good that it went away. And I have to talk about the bike parts that which you asked about brake pads. I went through a lot of brake pads. <laughs> also grips. I found out that I'm really particular about grips. So I think I went through like six or seven pairs of grips. As soon as my hands start feeling like extra yeah. fatigue, I was like new ones. <laughs> You're like, new grips. I kept them all so I can swap them out now that I'm less particular. But, and then drivetrains, I went through like two drivetrains it's a lot of miles, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you're supposed to change your drivetrain every 2000 miles, right? Or my, your drivetrain, your chain, all of that stuff. Yeah. I was definitely wearing them down to the end. I have some pictures of my, my cassette where it's just like some of the teeth are totally flattened out. (laughs) How many miles was it? Uh, I think it was about 7,000. Holy cow. I think it was about 7,000. That's crazy. That's, you should check. But yeah, I don't know. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, I think it was between six and seven. Yeah, it was it was it was a lot of miles. Um, and what but kind of bikes, yeah, I mean, yeah, amazing. your bike seat. What kind of bike seat do you have? Is it WTB Diva? Okay. It's the only one I wear. I've tried others. It's so funny how personal saddles yes, are. I have yeah. other friends who are like, you have to ride this saddle, and I hate it. You yeah, know, and so. you were on there for a long time. So I mean, I think it's like, yeah, yeah. That's the one for me. So you, love, um, yeah. And it's funny because I think other saddles potentially are okay. But you know, when you switch saddles, you have to give it like two weeks to try them out. And yeah. if you do that, I've you, been on the no same one has saddle forever. For exactly. yeah, I'm not changing Why it if it works. Switch? Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. I, like, I don't need to do that. Like, I'm happy to change yeah. my wheels or like get a new drivetrain. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. But it is. Everyone's um, different. Yeah, totally. I'm definitely more particular with tires than I used to be. I think I learned a lot about my bike and what I prefer through this experience. So what do you, you what know? kind of tires do you like? I have WTB and I have a Vigilante up front and then a Trail Boss in the back. And because I like a lighter rolling. In the back, the back it, and the front are different. Yeah. On my bike, I want the tires to match, you know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally. And it it depends on your terrain too, like yeah. what your ride is really dusty here now. So I have other tires I swap out, but yeah, tires, brakes. I'm really particular about brakes. I ride Magura's MT7. They're like really intense brakes, but yeah. I, the fat, the better your brakes are, the faster you can go downhill because you can tr- control it better. Okay. And I like fast downhill. So. so do you ease into braking or you just like brake? Like what's your, what's no, your... I ease into it. I like those brakes cause they feel really modular. Like okay, you can like really you click, click, click. feel yeah. them going on and off. Whereas other ones that are as much power to me feel like they're on and off. You know, there's no middle zone where you can kind of like modulate in between. So, yeah. And so you do all your own bike tech stuff now, of course, cause you have, okay. To- so that's the other key component to this whole challenge is that my fiance is a professional level bike mechanic. Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> I have that advantage of That's someone. Amazing. In- That's huge. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very fortunate. Um, he, yeah, he did a lot. He's, you know, not exactly equal partners in the challenge, but he did a lot to help maintain my bikes throughout the process. And what were so. you doing for your nutrition and like eating on, that's a lot of miles, a lot of climbing, a lot of training. Yeah. At first I had this goal of just turning this whole year into a big 
great training exercise and yeah. dialing in my nutrition and, and figuring out my, you know, later on figuring out my power zones and everything. Yeah. And when it came down to it, especially in the beginning, uh, there just wasn't any time for me to prep. You're like, I'm so on the fly. Yeah. At one point I was just like, okay, I'm just going to eat whatever I can, like whatever I need. Yeah. I didn't lose as much weight as I expected to, <laughs> you know, cause at some point I'm like, I need yeah. to eat to stay powerful and healthy and I don't want to get sick. So just give me burgers and fries. Yeah. It's like a trade-off. I, I, I think yeah. you really, you know, in my experience, you know, you have this, you want to be healthy, but you also need a lot of calories when you're training and yeah. it's volume, like food volume. You know, it's like you can't only yeah. eat. I mean, you could pick, make healthy choices, of course, right? But like I, sure. I, you did, could certainly enjoy eating things that aren't so great because you're doing 12 hours of, you know, you're doing 25, but like I'm doing 12 hours of training a week. So it doesn't really matter. Yeah. But yeah. I think every person is different. And yeah. for me, I couldn't take on the the thought of, planning I guess yeah, nutrition you had enough planning. Like, yeah if I could go back that probably would have been something I would have done in preparation for the challenge was creating meal plans or thinking of thing like the ideal scenario ahead of time because once it started it was kind of full-on you know and then do you do like any like gels or carbohydrates in your water nothing no you're like no it's switched a little bit I don't do gels I I really like eating kind of like nor normal, normal food, food I your bike. and yeah. I think it's important to remember that because it was endurance I was going at a pretty low intensity all the time yeah you know, so I could digest things pretty easily. Yeah. Um, I love so that I about had, cycling. You can just like, yeah, eat whatever you want on your bike. Yeah. Take a break, enjoy the view. But I have certain things I like, like certain trail mixes or cereal bars. I'd usually have like on my six hour rides, I'd have like a bar and then a banana. I had a stash also of like Spindrift and LaCroix out in the forest so okay. that if I was running low on water on hot days, I could use that. <laughs> had some beer out there too. share it with any mountain lions. <laughs> I did. I shared it with people that I found bonking along the way. Like <laughs> I have something for you. <laughs> but my, um, my ultimate treat on a bike ride, especially the six hour ones is a Snickers bar. That's Ooh. my all time. That's a good idea. I eat like basically chocolate bars on my training rides. I honestly think it's the best riding food. Like you got nuts, you got chocolate, like it's fats, protein. Yeah, actually. <laughs> yeah. And scratch. I especially on hot days, I use scratch electrolyte for yeah. Otherwise I wouldn't have made it. Were you always by yourself? Did you have did your fiance go with you at all? Like did any friends join you on the ride? I did the majority of the riding on my own. I would say 80% of the riding was by myself. Not necessarily intentional, but people don't want to wake up at five <laughs> rides or, you know, there were long rides. Even my weekday rides were three to four hours yeah. and on the weekend, six to eight hour rides is a pretty big undertaking. And so, but people would go with me every once in a while, especially towards the end. I rode a lot more with people. Um, and, and I'd see people out there all the time. Santa right. Cruz is a small community. So, you know, it was funny. There was this one couple where I would see them, you know, like every other month before going on the backside of the mountains here. And 
they were like, we see you every time we come out here. I'm like, well, I'm out here every day. So did you have an Instagram feed or a website or something that you were uploading every day, like along the way that people were following, like the Iron Cowboy? Not every day, but actually, you know, I was, I I hadn't been using social media for like two or three years at that point. And, and really in the beginning also wanted to be conscious of not telling many people about right. it. I mean, the only people that knew about this was like my fiance and my parents and my sister, just cause I was like, I'm not going to be available. So yeah. don't, don't call me because I wanted to be sure that I was doing it for myself and that it wasn't outside pressure or expectation right. getting to do it. But then at one point I felt really confident about fit about that. I could do it yeah. and that I want to do it. And then it, and then I went to the women's adventure film tour in Santa Cruz mm-hmm. and just seeing stories of other women doing really cool stuff made me realize that it's important to share stories like we were talking about before. And so I started writing blogs for Juliana a little bit yeah. and posted on Instagram every once in a while, not super consistent, but just little updates. And, and I'm really happy I got to share it with people in that way. That's cool. What was your why? Did you have something that, that kept you going that you were like, this is why I do this? Yeah, I think, I think I really needed something to commit to and to see it through and to feel like I could do something big like that. You know, I, I was, I was not feeling confident in my riding at the time. And I think I just needed a big goal to achieve. And that was really something that I wanted. I wanted to know that I could do it, that I could see it through to the end. And so it's nice that the motivation was seeing it through to the end because you don't get that gratification unless you finish. <laughs> so, You're like, one more mile, one more yeah. thousand more feet. But I think also, you know, in, in Santa Cruz and just friends that I have, or there's a lot of very accomplished athletes that I know and are, and that I'm friends with. And to some degree, I, I felt like I just needed something that was my own to feel like I belonged in this group. And that's not true. That is, that is something that I put on myself, but I felt it nonetheless. And so taking on something where I felt like I had my little corner to celebrate my my thing that I could, you know, that could be mine um, definitely was something that I wanted and needed. And I have to say that my confidence as far as riding goes is super high now, (laughs) you know, like, doing something like this you don't really care about what people think after you're like well whatever I, yeah, I did totally. this thing yeah so you're like, <laughs> I don't care what you mic. think <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and again that's all expectations I put on myself I don't I don't think people are judging me very often it's all just you know my own self-consciousness coming out but it's great that you know, I guess I recognized that and did something so big that it squashed that at yeah. some point. You know? That's amazing. It's so, yeah. so amazing. Like, what did you love the most about it? And would you do it again? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. Um, I, the By far, the best thing of the whole experience was early on in the year when I was riding early in the morning and seeing the sunrise early in the morning, every day, almost every day, consistently seeing the sunrise like that up in the mountains is absolutely magical. And getting to that, it's just, 
what a great way to start the day. You know, you've already done something. It's beautiful. It's the start of a new day. So much promise. I'm not tired yet. <laughs> um, so that by far was the best experience. Gaining that confidence was the best result I could have ever asked for. Would I do it again? If I hadn't already done it, I would definitely do it. <laughs> You're like, it's done. Oh, I don't, I don't know that I would, uh, I don't know that I would do it again. Although I will say a few months into the challenge, I was like, I think 2 million is possible. <laughs> I started thinking about that. I was like, but you couldn't have a job. There's no way you could have a job yeah. and achieve 2 million. So there's a guy in New Zealand. It's funny because it's a small, it's kind it's of a small, small community, community yeah. of people who, who have climbed a million feet, especially on a mountain bike. Um, and there's a guy in New Zealand who just finished doing his million and he finished it by like July 7th or something crazy. He's, it's incredible. I mean, I have no idea how he did that. He's yeah. And he works too. He works in a bike shop. I was so gonna say, does he have a job? Harder, yeah. Yeah. Harder work than, you know, I get to sit in a chair. He's like working in a bike shop all day. So, but I'm curious to see what his final count is at the end of the year. And I wouldn't be surprised if he pushes to try to do 2 million. <laughs> Ben Hildred. Oh, cool. Cool. What was the name of the triathlon club that you trained with in Santa Cruz? I was just curious. Yeah. Santa Cruz Triathlon Association. And they have a program called New to Try, uh, which is awesome. Like, I don't know that I I would have been comfortable joining a tri club without that. So yeah, it was a great program. That's awesome. And so like, what do you have another, um, do you have another epic adventure planned? Are you taking a break? I'm definitely thinking about it. I had, I had a loose plan of training and going to do Grinduro, but then that hasn't happened. (laughs) So I definitely, that I think is probably the most important thing I can take from this experience is that setting a goal allows you to achieve so much more than if you don't have a goal. If you have a goal, you'll deal with pain, discomfort, you know, busyness, whatever to reach that goal. And I think that's super important because it's super important for me because I I tend to let that stuff get in the way. So setting goals is super important. And so definitely I will set a goal. What it is yet, I do not know. (laughs) Do you take a lot of the lessons that you learn from this challenge into like back into your just everyday life and career, like you're saying, like setting goals or getting through all the things. 100%. Yeah. I mean, setting goals is by far the most important point. And I've applied that to my work with the goal with the sustainability initiative and the renew series, our, our goal of hitting an entirely recycled line by 2026 is such a great example, yeah. you know, and, and having that goal for us, all the choices we make are put through that lens, you know? And so that's super important to keep in mind and constantly be moving towards. So definitely apply that. Yeah. And so are you still riding? Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Not nearly as much. (laughs) What are you doing recreationally for cycling? Pretty casual right now. You know, I feel like in the beginning, just that was part of taking a break after doing something big, but yeah, I think I try to get out like two, three, at least days a week and yeah. ride, you know, no, no pressure. It, it's definitely very liberating, not having a specific elevation that yeah. I have to hit. A day. I remember riding in January, right after the challenge was done and just being like, 
oh, I don't have to ride for six hours today. I can go for a two hour ride if I want to. Not that I don't like six hour rides. Actually, those are some of my favorites, but it's, it's interesting to ride now so much more casually than I was for all of last year. That's so cool. I think it's so awesome what you've accomplished and especially like in your cycling and also in your career and what you're doing with Giro. Thank you so much. Well, this has been so awesome. Thank you again, Margo. Thank you for having me. This has been such a pleasure. I'm so excited that I got to chat with you. Thanks again for tuning in to Marnie on the Move. If you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts. Follow us on social. Marnie on the move for Facebook and Instagram and Marnie Salop on Twitter. Head over to our website, MarnieOnTheMove.com for more info on this episode, links in the show notes, and of course, sign up for our quarterly newsletter, The Download, to get updates, deals, giveaways, and information on future events for 2019. I want to hear from you. Email me marnieonthemove1 at gmail.com and let me know what you're enjoying what you want to hear more of if you have questions for our guests just reach out 